This is Window on the East, a podcast from BNE Intellinews. Subscribe at bne.eu. Welcome to Window on the East. So how about Iran as an investment destination? While that sounds outlandish to some, the Islamic Republic, with sanctions lifted and moderate President Hassan Rouhani installed, is increasingly seen as an investable frontier market. With its large, highly educated population and breathtaking hydrocarbons, Iran should be one of the most attractive emerging economies. So say Clemente Capello and Kian Zandiyar of Sturgeon Capital, an investment management company with assets approaching 10 million euros. I started by asking Clemente in Italian what first attracted him to Iran. I was always fascinated by, by Iran, its millennium uh, history and, and the wider region of, of the Silk Road and Central Asia. My parents were, were diplomats in Tehran in the, in the 70s. And, you know, also if you name a company Sturgeon Capital, you, you kind of have to do Iran. It's not, it's not really a choice, I think. But, you know, the, the, the fish has been around for much more time than the humans. So it, it's got a track record of surviving up and down of market cycles. Um, climate change and so on. So I, I think it's a quite resilient fish, and, and that's how we see ourselves. And how's, how's it been in, in recent uh, months? Iran's obviously been in the news a lot. Um, we've had this deal, the 5 plus 1, the UN Security Council members plus Germany, saying they want to bring back Iran into the fold. Uh, that was pretty good geopolitical foresight on your part. Uh, so I, I think on the geopolitical side, I think since Rani got elected president, you can see that... The, the, that was, was 2013. That was uh, an opening up, and it's, it's two opening up, really. One is the, the foreign policy side, which people are familiar with, and you know the, the, the talks with the West have changed in tone dramatically from Ahmadinejad. But the other aspect is also on the internal side, um, economics was a kind of more from a sort of left-wing populist side, which was Ahmadinejad subsidies, um, debasement of the currency and so on, to a more sort of free market-oriented uh, economic policy, which um, we thought would be good for, for investors. And so, Kian, tell me about your uh, links to, to Iran. Sure. So um, I'm, I was born in Britain, but uh, to Iranian parents who... Um, lived here for over two decades now. Um, I've been going back to Iran since birth roughly every year. Um, and from a business perspective, it always had a pull on me. Um, I've been involved in investing from a young age. And the opportunity came along to, to set up a fund to then invest in a country. It was kind of the, the dream opportunity. Um, so it came together very well. In my so it's pretty much all portfolio investment. Uh, the Tehran Stock Exchange been around since the 60s. Yep. It always kept trading, even yeah. after Correct. the Iranian Revolution in '79. So, what's the total market cap sure. of the, of the um, stock market? If you take it today, the total market cap. Well, there's two exchanges. One is the Tehran Stock Exchange, where it's mostly the, the large cap companies, and you have a smaller exchange which you can consider the same as AIM in London. Okay. Uh, where it's more small caps. If you put the two together, the total market cap now is about 140 billion dollars. Um, it's not have, insignificant. No, it's not insignificant. You have over 600 companies. Um, daily trading volume, nearly $150 million. Um, and if you look at the sector breakdown, it's not like other emerging or frontier market countries where it's uh, mostly compromised of, say, uh, financials or natural resources. It's very well diversified. So when you invest, you're getting a- actual exposure to the economy. 
Iran is, though, of course, uh, an energy superpower, or could be. I think it's the, the, the fourth or fifth biggest oil reserves, the, the second or first biggest gas reserves, depending on your definition. Is there a danger, Clemente, that the fund you founded here does just become a derivative of commodity prices? I don't think so. I think um, the way we look at it is resources, uh, natural resources, provides a base and an income for the government. But if you look at the statistics, the oil and gas industry plays a much smaller role in the overall economy and in terms of government finance than, say, Russia or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela or other countries. So it's, it's a much more diverse play. Um, and does your portfolio reflect that? The, the statistic exactly is today the government derives less than 35% of its revenue from oil. Okay. Um, and it's coming from a very relatively low base price, so yeah. whatever upside is there. In terms of the portfolio, we have no direct exposure to oil and gas. Really? Um, okay. In fact, the, the majority of thinking is kind of second derivative play on that, and yet you're saying, um, well, the economy would become much stronger, there's a growing middle class, and it should feed into the economy in other ways, and we have exposure in that way. So just roughly speaking, without giving away trade secrets, yeah. what's the sort of rough mix between consumer sector, mm-hmm. services, financial mm-hmm. services, so infrastructure? We've, we've, we've kind of um, flipped the side where in a, in a lot of the media you hear that, uh, well, Iran is a growing middle class, Iran is a young demographic, 6% of the population of 30, and good industries to invest within that dynamic are, say, consumer goods and FMCG. But the reality is that for nearly 20 years, Iran has been a closed economy. Therefore, businesses there within these sectors have never had to worry about foreign competition. And now that the market is opening up, you're going to get disruption. So we've kind of flipped down on its head and said, well, which industries and companies have a comparative advantage by being in Iran? And if you look at the manufacturing sector, you can find a lot of opportunity. So, for example, we like glass a lot. Um, And if you look at the cost of production of glass in Iran, it's amongst the lowest in the whole world. So we have nearly a 10 to 15% allocation to the industrial sector where you have a low-cost operation that because the sanctions never could export, and now you have a whole host of export opportunities. Um, so that's, that's kind of the, the sector breakdown. Kian's obviously a sort of partial insider, if you like, <laughs> Farsi-speaking, ethnically Iranian, albeit British-born and, and, and bred. How about you, Clemente? You're, you're, you're an Italian. Um, you've obviously spent a lot of your life abroad. But do you feel you can get close to these companies that you invest in? Can you meet the management? Do you feel you can hold them to account? That's, that's a very difficult question. I mean, the, the way we work with, together with Kian is, is Kian does uh, the majority of the work. What I do is, is I try to challenge his assumption. And um, Kian spends much more time on the ground. And that's, that's great in general for, for information gathering to, to get a feel. But it also gives you inherent biases. And I, I kind of go to Iran maybe uh, a week, every quarter or so, and what I try to do is, is, is challenge and, and create, you know, what ifs and what if that guy is not telling you the truth? What if these accounts um, have some, some issues? What if that competitor comes in? Um, I try to, my, my job is really to, to come up with, with reason not to invest. You've obviously been, to coin a phrase, kicking around some of the more interesting emerging markets for quite a few years now. We, we first met each other in, in, in Russia uh, longer ago than we care, care to acknowledge on tape. How does Iran compare? We read a lot about the you know, 80 million people, the really high levels of education. You know, no one can deny the entrepreneurial calibre 
of Iranian people. The astonishing and deep-seated uh, culture of maths and science and all the rest of it. But what does your gut tell you, Clementi, about how this compares to, say, mid-1990s Russia? There is, there, there is lots of similarities, uh, but there is one major big difference that sometimes people forget. Um, in Russia, what you had is a, the old regime was crumbling and there was new um, independent power centers popping up. Whereas the government or other entities, semi-corporate, the sort of underground. In Iran, you do have different power centers, but you have a similar structure that has evolved uh, rather than, than crumbled. Um, so I think in that case, I think we're more similar to, to a Chinese uh, scenario. Okay. Now, on the other hand, you still had, you're having a lot of privatization and you're having uh, uh, an economy that is going from a sort of socialist setup to a more free market oriented. So in that case, you have some similarities with the Soviet Union. But it, in, the, in, in the Russian case, it's been you know, basically overnight. Here we're talking about a much smoother transition. And, and still very rapid in historic terms. Very rapid, but I, I, ideally you would look at uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping transition. Um, so you, you sort of change the way of managing the economy in order for um, the old-timers to stay in power uh, rather than you know, the old establishment crumbling. So there are similarities with, with, with the Chinese model, if you like, but the three of us were recently in Tehran, of course, during uh, the elections, elections which didn't really get all that much coverage in the West because of you know, Trump was going on and lots of other news flow. But I took those elections, Kian, to be pretty optimistic from an outsider's point of view, yeah. with reformers yeah. um, punching through, with a lot of the more conservative uh, uh, clerics um, being voted down. Uh, and a real sense now that Rouhani could stand again. Correct. Um, so essentially what you had was one of the highest turnouts in any parliamentary election since uh, the Revolution of 79. Um, and in Tehran, where we was together, all 30 seats that were up for, for parliament, all 30 were won by reformists. Um, they also managed to take control of the uh, Assembly of Experts, which essentially plays a role in choosing the next supreme leader. Um, and what you can take that as is... A, is I would a, clarify, they increase their influence. Increase their influence. The supreme leader as opposed to the president. In the ultimate power. The ultimate the power. Um, and what that essentially signified was a, a tap on the back by the people to, to Rouhani saying... They want openness, uh, they want ahead. a deal with Correct. the West. And now with uh, general elections in 2017, uh, the probability of another four-year cycle for Rouhani is... So this guy, Rouhani, you know, he's English-speaking, he's got a PhD from Glasgow, yeah. Caledonian University. Does he have real power, or is it still up to the supreme leader? Over this conversation looms the spectre of the Revolutionary Guard. A lot of people listening to this are very informed uh, frontier investors. How much power does Rouhani really have? I think he has power to the degree where he's popular. Um, I think from Khamenei's standpoint, uh, Rouhani... He's popular, and therefore he has power right now. Um, uh, Khamenei understands that there is, um, it's still a regime that needs to take into account uh, public opinion. Now, here and then, he can force it one way or another, but overall, he needs to take into account what the population wants. 
And Rouhani is a good mix between ultimately a regime insider, somebody that has been part of the regime for a very, very long time, a trusted advisor in a number of governments, and at the same time is somebody that is representing for the more younger urban population uh, a bit of change. Um, but the, the key challenge is in, in one year you're going to have presidential election. In the meantime, you will want to see some genuine, tangible economic progress, which right now is being is not really happening because uh, some of the small operational issues are not being solved, in particular the, the, the banking system. Uh, so I think for, for Rani to really be popular, you need a strong GDP. In order to have a strong GDP growth, you need FDI. Now, at BNE and Telenews, um, our sister company, Newsparter Events, recently held a very interesting um, breakfast discussion on Iran with some very high-ranking panellists. Uh, and this question of banking, particularly, is Iran going to be allowed to be back on the SWIFT network, dominated the discussion. What's your view, Kian, on this? The Americans tell us that it's all fine, of course they can come back on SWIFT, and yet when it comes down to it, it seems that the compliance officers just won't tick the box to allow the deals to go through. Sure. This must be something that you guys deal with every day. Yeah. Um, as a bit of background, when sanctions were lifted on January 16th, the US had two sets of sanctions. Uh, one was essentially primary sanctions, which meant that no US person could do business with Iran, and the second was secondary sanctions. This essentially meant that the U.S. had extraterritorial reach to prosecute any non-U.S. person doing business in Iran. Now, when sanctions or institution, as they've done in the past, correct. BNP Paribas, the nearly Sok seven Gen. billion fund. Yeah. Now, when sanctions got lifted, secondary sanctions got lifted. That meant for non-U.S. people or institutions could do business in Iran. Um, you've seen a lot of uh, business delegations go to Iran, and you hear about it on a daily basis. Um, but the issue still remains the banking problem, as you say. Now, the issue, what, where it lies is with mo- mostly compliance, and if you think of the risk-reward for them, uh, the reward for them from doing business with Iran is, say, a couple, 10 to 15, 20 million, couple, in, a, in a tens of millions. Yeah. But they've seen the potential punishments that they received in the billions, and for them, yet, it still doesn't make sense. Now, you've had um, Kerry go around to, for example, in London, he's speaking to the heads of the banks as to, you're clear to do business, but they, they say, well, you're state not... making very warm yeah. noises. But you do not control Treasury, right. which is where their worry is. Now, one source of hope is or that... the state-level prosecutors in New York, for instance. Correct. Right. Now, now, one source of hope is you recently read about the nearly $20, $25 billion deal Iran has done with Boeing. Um, Boeing, as you may know, has exemption to do business with Iran outside of sanctions. Um, and if that goes through, I assume they want to get paid, and they have to get paid for the U.S. banking channels. That could open up um, the opportunity and for a European bank to say, okay, it's okay to go. Let me be a bit more blunt. I mean, we've substituted basically the bureaucrats with the bureaucrats in the, in the compliance department. And right now they're faced with choice of saying yes, where they take on even a little bit of risk, and saying no, and they take on no risk. But there is no upside for a bureaucrat, as we know, to say yes mm. and take on even the slightest risk. Uh, so Boeing, as Kian mentioned, is basically allowed to sell planes. But if you want to buy pistachio from Iran, then you're into trouble. And what's this mean for your business, chaps? It means that every time we have an investor that wants to invest in Iran, um, you know, at some stage during the investment process, there is... He, he will have to do much more work to invest than, an, than in any other 
a country. That means that the actual amount of money that came into the country is like ridiculously low, and we're probably more than 30 or 40% of that. And so in terms of portfolio investment? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Even though you're set up in a very plain vanilla absolutely. manner for a yes. regular asset management company? So you, you, you know, we, I have this discussion with some investors, and the one I, I admire the most tell me, that's great, it means we're still ahead of the curve, we're ahead of the pack, and then there's other ones uh, which will say, oh, no, 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 then that means we're too early. Okay, come back in next year, you know, so... We'll see which one is um, is the right choice. And what do you think will break the logjam? Because a lot of this applies not just to portfolio investors, with all respect, mm. uh, but to the direct investors. I think there'll be a lot of pressure, um, bottom-up pressure in the U.S. Uh, from the oil and gas industry, from other sectors. Let's say, look, um, Europe can do business with Iran. We can't. This is unfair advantage for Europe. And ultimately, the politician, whether from Congress or the president, after the, the, the presidential election, will need to take a ta- account into that. Mm. So what do you think of the notion that I've heard from several pretty well-informed Iranians that actually the US now needs Iran in the region? Iran as a, as a grown-up, as a strong economy, uh, the Saudis are much weaker than they were, it's particularly tough to do gener- uh, business... It's particularly tough to do business with this generation of Saudis as opposed to the immediate post-war generation. Well, there's clearly a shift in the Middle East. Um, One of it is is shale oil. That means the Middle East plays a slightly less important role for the U.S. And and Iran has been traditionally uh, a Western ally pre-'79. And I think you're looking at a trend which is kind of going back to that pre-'79 um, um, establishment. Now, we're not there yet. Uh, I mean, a relationship between the Supreme Leader and Russia and China in particular are, are very close and, and, and Saudi's relationship with the US is still very strong. But they, they've been uh, doing much worse um, in recent years. And so you see Iran's role emerging and, and, and the Saudi's role kind of declining in, in influence. Beyond the geopolitics and as fund managers, particularly country-specific fund managers, you really get this place under your, under your fingernails in many ways, uh, in, a, in a good way. Tell us about some of the companies that you've met, the entrepreneur, entrepreneurs you've met, um, how you feel um, about the companies. Sure. Um, one example is Afronet. Um, so this is the largest ISP provider in uh, Iran? Correct. Um, in general, in Iran, we try to move towards uh, companies which are controlled by either the founding family or founding individual, be it an entrepreneur. And Afranet is a case in example. Um, the, the, the founder, he's, he did his PhD in computer science in Canada roughly 20 years ago, um, came back to Iran, and essentially started providing high bandwidth broadband at a time where it was non-existent in Iran. Uh, the business eventually grew for him and became a cash cow, uh, he started taking the cash from that business. He's now developing cloud computing and a data center business. Again, something in his infancy in Iran. Now, something very smart that he did was he run, owned roughly 70% of that business. And he sold two 20% blocks to the largest telecom providers in the country. So essentially, any 3G or 4G requirements they have have to go through him. Um, any server requirements they have have to also go through him. Um, you talk to him, he's a fanatic. He's, he's obsessed by his business. Um, you look at the earnings in, in real terms, they've compounded nearly 100% for the past five years. 
um, and it's a, it's a great opportunity. But aren't there corporate governance dangers for outside investors in these these strongly sure. family-owned sure. companies? Do they have uh, IFRS uh, accounts? Sure. Um, can, can, is there enough transparency for fund managers based in the UK or US sure. to really get a handle on them? Yeah. Um, the accounting is not exactly IFRS, but it's pretty close. Um, the regulators mandated by next year that all companies have to follow IFRS. Um, in terms of the data or information that you have, it's actually very good. If you compare it to Edgar in the US, all companies have to provide quarterly reports, which are very detailed as to cost and everything. Um, so you have all the information there that you work with, the caveat being that it's all in Iranian. So you it's have all to in Farsi, Correct. Right? Now, this, again, will change over time. Um, but it comes back to your earlier question as to how Clemente really helps, and it's, it's understanding the stakeholder structure, to really think about who does the management really have to please if they're not private, if it's an appointed management, who are the suppliers, who are the competitors, um, and creating essentially a stakeholder map to really understand all the, the, the parties which are at, at play within, within the company you're looking at. I mean, following up on, on Russia, if you take the Russian example, you see that in Russia what happens is whenever a company is under the control of the government, uh, the, the CIO needs to please the government. And in order to do that, share price and dividends are usually not the priority. There's, there's other aspects. What we want to have is a CEO or a management team that has his interests more or less aligned with minorities. And in order to have that, it's usually in smaller family-owned companies you have more more of that, rather than in big groups. What percentage of your portfolio is in companies where the state has a significant or a majority stake? Um, you could say now about 35%. Okay, so 65% of your majority Correct. is wholly privately owned. Yeah. Um, and it, it's important to know that the, the government directly doesn't have much ownership. It's through semi-state companies or pension funds. Um, so essentially 10 years ago, Iran went through a large privatization program um, where what happened was there was, because of sanctions, there wasn't enough cap- capital to take up that capacity of companies that were coming into the market. So the government set up holding companies to then buy into the IPOs. So they're kind of semi-government structures that you're uh, buying into. And just going on to the investment environment more broadly, what's your outlook on Iranian uh, macro at the moment? Sure. And is it wholly linked to the oil price or are there other considerations? Um, the, for us, the most important consideration and catalyst is interest rates. Um, so at the beginning of the year, you read a lot about Iran being one of the cheapest markets in the world. It was trading at a PE of 5, price to earnings of 5. Now, the reality of that is it, it completely ignored what domestic opportunity cost was. In that r- roughly three years ago, you had, once sanctions intensified, a devaluation of nearly 80%. Mm. Now, what followed that was inflation of, from the mid-teens to the high 40s. Now, naturally, the government had to raise interest rates to, to bring that down. And they raised it from the mid-teens to the high 20s. Now, they did, they did quite a good job. Interest rates of, sorry, inflation has fallen from 46% to now 7.4% in, in a few years. Correct, point to point. But interest rates still were at 20%. Okay. So effectively, at the beginning of the year, if I put my money in a bank, I could get 20%. Yeah. Whilst the market was earning tw- earnings yield of 20% as well. So right. why buy a risk asset when yeah. you can get a risk-free asset? Now, the central bank has been explicit that they want to match interest rates with inflation. So you have nearly a 10% fall in uh, interest rates, and it's already happening. They fell to 18%, uh, and recently this month they announced that banks have to reduce deposit rates from 18 to 15%. Okay. And if you go back to valuation 101, your cost of capital overnight changes from 20 to 10. So will you start getting domestic money into the stock market? Correct. I mean, that's I mean, often a problem with frontier and emerging markets, domestic pension funds, yeah. 
even if they exist, often want to invest elsewhere. They want yep. to do um, um, non-listed investments, yep. private equity-style investments. Yep. I mean, you, what you'll have is a reallocation from bank deposits to the market. Mm. Uh, once the yield and the dividend yield to the market becomes more attractive relative to what you can get at a bank, which at the moment is the case. Now, in China, that's been a problem, hasn't it? The middle classes have been so trigger-happy... Um, you know how they've got nowhere else to invest. It's a yeah. closed capital account. It's either a state-run bank yeah. or it's the stock market or it's property. And we've seen what's happened to property. Is it similar in Iran, where where you've got lots of very um, febrile, um, unsticky retail middle class money with people's you know college fees and and, and ability to fund their kids' weddings, yeah. uh, very high emotional investments going on in the stock market? Um, not to the same level as China, but you do have a high, re- high retail participation. So 60 to 70% of daily flows is from retail money. Now, the dispersion of that isn't spread among society, but it's just relative to the amount of money that's in the, in the market is high retail participation. So there is very little leverage in the system. Yeah. So if you take out the financial sector, which is this functional... Everything else has very low levels of leverage, mm. be it the government or consumer or anybody. What do you enjoy most about running um, an asset management company, Clemente, that's focused wholly on Iran? Apart from watching people's faces at parties when you tell them what you do for a living. Um, <laughs> I, I like the discovering something new, something that's, you know, after where people haven't really been there before. I mean, there's very few investors that look at Iran or Central Asia for that reason. And um, I think people are, in the investment world, Iranians are more sincere than than the rest of the world because there hasn't been, there's no such a thing as investor relation. So management is nearly too honest sometimes. This is a population which is known to, you know, not exactly be blunt. So it, it's very ironic. It is a country that, obviously, it's 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 an advanced economy in many ways that then took a, a, a turn down ideological cul-de-sac. Yeah. But it has missed out on the emerging markets boom since the, the late 80s, right? And now suddenly uh, it's here. What does it mean to you as a Anglo-Iranian, if you like, to be trying to bring money into uh, the market the market of your predecessors? No, I mean, it's extremely exciting and interesting because um, you really see it when you go there. So when you, I've lived all my life in the UK and all the, the things that you're used to are, are sometimes not there, which, are, which is a good thing and, and a bad thing. And all you see is opportunity when you go there. And just being a part of that and uh, being part of the process is fascinating. You know, for once, you really believe it's, it's a win-win. So Iran needs that capital, and they're obviously mm. delighted to have that capital. Investors are, are left with one of the only places which is the, other, the opposite of all the typical mm. problems we have here. Mm. Deflation, aging population, interest rates, everything, debt, everything is the opposite mm. in a good way. So it's like Alice in Wonderland, you know. You, the you end up in the rabbit hole. rare for investors to see at the same time. And so it's really, it's good for the investor, it's good for Iran, because that capital brings ideas, brings, um, you know, it's an it's a idea exchange, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. And hopefully brings less conflict between our countries. Yeah. Obviously, if you do business with a country, you tend not to go to war with them. <laughs> Clemente, Kian, nice to talk to you. Thank you, Liam. Mm-hmm.